0: The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anne from Piki Podcast drops by to discuss a number of disputed Pokemon songs. Flying Without Wings, Happy Together, and several others go under the microscope to determine just how tied they are to the franchise. In the process, we cover Will the Goldberg movie, a car commercial, and some other oddities. So it's definitely worth the listen. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from Piggy Podcast. And today we're going to be doing our discussion of disputed Pokemon songs. So just to kind of explain what this is, these are, with very few exceptions, songs that were not written for Pokemon, but for one reason or another came into the Pokemon orbit, usually on a soundtrack or in a commercial or something of that nature. So um, we're going to be deciding a couple things. We're going to be discussing sort of the production of the songs, especially for ones that weren't uh, ones we talked about uh, before. And we're also going to be talking about, you know, how much of a Pokemon song is. It's not all going to be, you know, yes or no, because some of these are not that simple. Some of them have depends where you're from in the world and stuff like that. So uh th- those are some important considerations there, and uh, also do not expect this to be like a trial of some sort. We did split up uh, our songs so that we each picked three, but uh, this is not going to be a uh you know a guilty, not guilty type of uh, deal here. We're not going for that kind of tone. So sorry if you came in looking for that, but uh, sort of the way it works is we're going to go through each of the songs, and we're going to sort of discuss them just like that. so and why don't you just list yours off right now what What were those?
1: Yes, um, You're My Best Friend, as performed by Paul Canning, Soda Pop, as performed by Britney Spears, and Hajimari no Uta, as performed by Puffy, P- or Puffy Ami
0: So the three I picked were Making My Way Any Way That I Can, uh, best known, uh, as far as Pokemon goes, by uh, Billy Piper. I picked Flying Without Wings by Westlife, and Happy Together by The Turtles, we did try and pick out songs that were sort of, we felt were on different uh, sides of the sort of continuum there, and we did try also to pick out songs that we would have some things to say about regardless of where they fell on that spectrum. And we also kind of avoided, there are some songs, for example, that have uh, an existence outside the Pokemon franchise, like We're a Miracle or They Don't Understand, but Either it's so limited, there's not much to talk about, or it, it would just kind of be an obvious discussion. Or in the case, especially We're a Miracle, we've kind of discussed that one to death. Um, if you want to know more about that, check out our, our Mewtwo uh, Strikes Back-related discussions. We have plenty on that one there. But Anne, I think we decided that you would go first with one of your songs. Tell us a little bit about You're My Best Friend. Uh, where was this used and, and stuff like that?
1: Okay, so you're my best friend, um, as performed by Paul Canning, was used in uh, a Pokemon Go commercial, like sort of a buddy feeling, and like the ideas, like a little boy gets a Squirtle plushie at the beginning of the commercial, and it's his best friend, and then as he grows up, he can't keep the plushie because plushies have a shelf life, but he, because of Pokemon Go, he can keep his best friend with him all the time. It's an adorable commercial, and the song is a very acoustic um, and touching rendering of of this song, You're My Best Friend, which was written by Queen. Um, it was actually written by the bass player, John Deacon. Um, he wrote it for his wife. And if you listen to the original, you kind of, or look at the lyrics of the full song, you kind of notice it's talking more about kind of a romantic relationship. But like, it suits very well for this this Pokemon context of like people who are going through life together.
0: So tell us a little bit about Paul Canning though. He does a lot of these acoustic covers of songs. What do you know about him?
1: Yeah. um, He is a singer songwriter from London. Um, He did start his career off doing a lot of acoustic songs, like basically just a guitar covering many things, but uh, has released a few albums of his own original music with um, a bit more instrumentation and production. He kind of has sort of a, a little bit of an old-timey rock and roll flavor to his music, to his original stuff um, and his most recent albums, which is kind of neat, kind of gives him a little bit more dimension to set him apart from all the other singer-songwriters with a guitar. Um, he cites his greatest accomplishments as um, never supporting Coldplay or written a song with Paul McCartney. i So take that as you will. Maybe that is like the turn on for you. But yeah, he's supported 10CC on their UK tour. He's um, he also sings for them sometimes when needed. And yeah, he's just kind of a young, young singer songwriter dude who's slowly built up a career.
0: Kind of funny you mentioned Ten CC there. I was just thinking when I was originally listening to this, I can't remember—is this a Queen song or a Ten CC song? It's kind of in both their wheelhouses, <laughs> so maybe not the the biggest thing there. Right. So, yeah, I did take a listen to this a few days ago. Uh, I think my favorite part was sort of towards the end, where sort of the it gets a little more interesting, and some of the harmonies and stuff come in. He, he su- certainly seems like a, a very proficient player. I didn't have a chance to listen to some of his other stuff, but. Um, I guess if we're we're kind of asking how much um this fits, where this fits on the Pokemon versus not a Pokemon song continuum, I mean, for the original song, I mean, I, I guess they must've picked this version either. They thought it worked better or they were trying to save money or they, you know, they could only get the rights to the cover version, to so like the composition, but not to the uh, original master recording for the queen version. You know, that's, Maybe even that song is a little bit overplayed. It's certainly not an unpopular song for for various purposes. Um, I guess what I'm getting at there is this: this song is definitely well known. Uh, do you have any idea how much of this uh, commercial was aired on television or stuff like that? Or
1: um, I'm not entirely sure. I've I never saw it, but it seems to have a huge YouTube presence and like definitely when you go to Paul Manning's page like outside of the com- like the commercials on YouTube but when you just go to postings on his YouTube channel or posting of his song lyrics by other people things like that there's a huge contingent of people who like bring up Pokemon Go and bring up that commercial so clearly um it reached a lot of people beyond just beyond just you know who saw it in the moment
0: yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I have to say it's better than my idea. I had a joke idea before Pokemon Go came out, which really the initial launch did not have much in the way of commercials. I kind of joked, though, that they could use the uh, NXS song Never Tear Us Apart because the word, the phrase two worlds collide was great for an augmented reality game. That was, that was more of a joke. This one, I, I think, makes a lot more sense as its use. But as far as being associated with Pokemon, I, I think we can safely say for the song itself that's probably a not-really- Uh, or or no. Uh, But maybe for this version, maybe we can say, you know, it's a lot more famous of a version because of this commercial. Um, It sounds like that makes it uh, a little bit there. So maybe this particular version counts as a Pokemon song. Uh, What do you think about that, Anne?
1: I I would agree with that. I would also think that it might be a bit generational, um, because there are definitely sort of the older generation of the population who grew up with Queen and like you know, ride or die. But there are a lot of younger people who are not as, like that is not as invested in their lives. Like maybe they know Bohemian Rhapsody, but the other songs are not as familiar to them. And I was surprised, again, when I looked around on YouTube and on his website for information about him and about this song, how many people were like, who's here because of Squirtle? Who's here because of Pokemon Go? So I think you, you're right, that's, this version at least has a case for having a bit more of a tie to Pokemon than just being a queen cover.
0: So yeah, I think, I think that's kind of an interesting way to split it, and, and uh, we might uh, bring that back at some point. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, let's go over to the first song I picked. Uh, this is one we've, we actually brought up a number of times, um, but it's Making My Way Any Way That I Can. And this song has an interesting sort of history of quite a few different versions. There are at least four different distinct arrangements that I know of. Um, Let's sort of start at the beginning. It was written by legendary songwriter Diane Warren. She's still active today. Uh, she's very well known for producing a lot of tie-in songs actually for movies or having a lot of her songs selected for that. I think she's she might hold the record at least in her category of like uh, best original song for losing the Oscar for that the most times. I think she's up to eight or nine at this point, maybe even ten. Uh, hopefully she keeps working at it, she'll eventually get one of those. Uh,
1: I mean, would that we all could lose an Oscar, right? <laughs> um,
0: it, I'm sure it gets frustrating, like the you know the the Buffalo Bills. But any case, making my way as far as I know, the first version of it came out in 1996. It was performed by Winona Judd, and was on the soundtrack to a a, a movie called The Associate. Now, The Associate is a business comedy starring Whoopi Goldberg. And it actually has a lot of music associated with it. I think it was done in association with Polygram and Interscope uh, and released by Hollywood Pictures, which is a subsidiary of Disney. Although, uh, I just point out, this is a PG-13 movie, so I'm pretty sure it's not on Disney+, and that may partially explain why from uh, some of the things in the movie. But basically, the, the plot of this movie is that... Uh, uh, Whoopi plays a somewhat jaded uh, businesswoman who has sort of gotten passed over per, for promotion and stuff like that uh, because she's a woman, uh, effectively. And she tries to start her own business, and that's not going so great. So eventually she comes up with this this fake person called Robert Cuddy, works uh, and uses that to sort of convince people to sort of uh, follow her advice and stuff like that, and uh, hilarity ensues. Um, actually, the, the movie, um, has like a, a pretty low rating. It's got like a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. But, um, in order to prepare for this, I actually, uh, spent a couple of dollars and rented it on iTunes earlier this week just so I could see, uh, if and where the song was in the movie. It turns out it's in the end credits. But, I actually uh enjoyed it a fair bit. I'm not gonna say it's as good as some of Whoopi's other comedies like uh the Sister Act's uh m- movies and stuff like that, but it's certainly better than a twenty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It h- held my attention for the duration of the movie. And you know, it might even be a little more relevant now for a variety of reasons. Uh you'll you'll never guess what celebrity businessman makes a cameo and possibly because of a hotel that was used in the uh the movie. But in any event, this version that's used in this movie is uh, totally different from the one you would have heard on the the Pokémon, the first movie soundtrack. It's got more of a, a lounge type of feel to it, and m- much more piano-driven than the Billy Piper version. However, as I kind of suggested with the uh, Rotten Tomatoes score, this movie did not do well in the box office. It's like U.S. Uh, gross was something like $12 million, uh, which for a wide-release picture was on like 1,700 screens. Not good. So fast forward a few years to 1999, and we get our second version of this song. It's by a woman by the name of Marsha Hines. She's an Australian uh, singer of African descent, and um, basically she releases an album early in the year that has a different version of it. It's sort of an in-between between the Winona Judd version and the Billy Piper version. It's is the best way I can describe it. This one, interestingly, actually has a few remixes out there. Um, I did kind of look up. It doesn't look like it charted anywhere outside of Australia, and it only made it to 79 there. So maybe not the most popular version of that either. But then we get to, I guess, third time's the charm for this. (laughs) Um, We get to the Billy Piper version, which is, uh, if you want to find it outside the Pokemon, the first movie soundtrack, you're going to have to track down the Japanese version of her Walk of Life album, which has it on there. It's um, equalized uh, a little bit differently there. It has a little bit of different vocal looping and stuff like that. But otherwise, it's very similar to what's on the Pokemon version. There's just some very subtl- subtle differences. Um, there's one other version, which I guess came out a few years later, although it was probably written uh, around the same time as the other version. I think uh, for the Billy Piper version, they had uh, Guy Rush. I think I said that about right, um, as an additional writer on there. So he may have done some additional arrangement for the more uh, poppy, electronic version Billy did. But uh, the fourth version is—it comes from a reality show called Faking the Video, uh, which was on MTV. And it's sometimes credited to Omarion. I think I said that about right. Omarion, I I can't remember exactly how it's said. Uh, But he does the vocals along with a few of the other uh, celebrities that were part of that show. Um, and that one is, it's kind of interesting. It's actually got like a rap verse in it and some other stuff. Um, kind of sadly, the only version that you'll find, uh, on streaming services and stuff is the Marsha Hines version. Uh, but all the other versions are findable if you know where to look. Okay. So, very long history there, um... And do you have any thoughts on just like sort of the chronology there of how this song just kept trying to come back and, you know, it kind of with its Billy Piper iteration, it finally hit pay dirt because the, the, the first movie pop soundtrack sold two million copies in the U.S. So it finally kind of got the exposure it maybe deserved. I don't know. Any thoughts on that area, Anne?
1: I find it really interesting because um, this is a song that I was really impressed with each artist I listened to how it can kind of mold into different genres. Like the We Ona Judd, it's kind of got a very country, adult contemporary feel. Um like by Marsha Hines, it like it's like sounding very like Christian contemporary. Um and Billy Piper is a much more poppy the Omarion one with like I did not know I needed Michelle Branch singing this song, but I did. Like, that kind of had a, a very different vibe and a much more, like, even more contemporary than Billy Piper pop song sound. So, like, I was very impressed by how versatile this song is. It could fit a lot of different genres, and I think that's kind of what allows it to be covered so often. Um, I do wonder, like, I didn't look at the lyrics of each successive version, but it sounded like occasionally there were lyric changes from cover to cover. So that also might be part of its versatility is that, like with one lyric change, it could very easily fit a country or a religious setting. It could very easily with another one word change fit a pop setting.
0: Yeah, the changes in lyrics are pretty slight with the exception of like the, the Omerion version has that rap verse, you know, I will never turn and run. There's nothing I can't overcome. And a couple more lines after that. So mm-hmm. that version has has more differences with some of the other ones. But yeah, I think you're, you're kind of right. I mean, one thing I noticed about both the Winona Judd and the Billy Piper versions is I think those both work for their respective movies. You know, tonally speaking, the Winona Judd is, version is very good for The Associate and uh, Billy Piper very good for Pokemon the first movie uh, because of the styles and sort of the target audience. But they both work there. I think one of the things that really sells it as a Pokemon song, though, is, you know, there's, first of all, there's a little nod, nods there to uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, um, you know, if the mountain's too high, if the river's too wide. The interesting thing is those were both in uh, the, That's uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and in this song, those are meant to be metaphorical when they were written. But then you translate them to Pokemon and they become literal. You know, sort of the um, you know, you have to traverse mountains and cross bodies of water and do other stuff in there. Uh in the Pokemon game. You know, so many times I played in someone else's game. So it, it and you know, there's even like I, I point out in my um why It Works series entry for this song that the it even uses the word strength, which is a move in the Pokemon games. Obviously, not something you were thinking about in in ninety six, unless unless Diane Warren somehow got an early copy from Japan or something of the games, uh, which I sincerely doubt. Um, but yeah, it's funny how that, all that stuff ends up being literal in the Pokemon context. And like I said, because this album's it's not you know this song is not in the movie itself, but Although, I, I wanted to just briefly mention, I think one place, and this is not a knock on the song itself, I think if they want to get the song in the movie and they could get it cleared, a good spot for this would have been in the uh, the dock uh, area or the, the, the sort of the building there uh, where they're waiting to get to New Island. And, and if they put that in the background, it's sort of as, as if it was music or something like that. Not to insult the song. It's a great song. I'm just thinking it would probably fit in that scene pretty well. Anne, any thoughts on that uh, little piece I added in there?
1: No, I would agree. I would agree. Like, it again, just, it's so versatile. <laughs> it could do anything.
0: You know, Anne, one other thing I've noticed about this song is that we talk about it a lot, uh, more than I think just about any other song that is not an opening or an ending to a Pokemon movie or the TV show. And... Uh, You know, I I think this would have totally worked on, like, To Be a Master as a song there. And I I think that kind of shows why. Uh, uh, And uh, do you agree with that as well?
1: Yeah, like, there is a reason we talk about it. It's just it's a song that works um, so well for its specific setting. Like, you know, as you were saying, like, Billy Piper's version of it is perfect for the Pokemon movie it was in. The lyrics fit Pokemon super well. Like, it's... I mean, I suppose if you grew up in, again, a different generation and Pokemon was not on your radar, you may never have heard Billy Piper's version and this song may have all kinds of other connotations to you. But for me, it's hard to think of this song as being anything other than Pokemon.
0: Yeah, so despite the other uses, I think we can pretty much put this into the Pokemon camp. I'm not sure, I mean... To be honest, you know, the the Associate was outgrossed by the Pokemon the First Movie soundtrack, because just that soundtrack uh, for Pokemon the First Movie sold enough to gross over like the $12 for the Associate movie. And, you know, the Marsha Hines didn't really chart outside of Australia, and didn't even chart that super high in Australia, not to say it's a bad version, I like it. Um, And then, you know, faking the video, kind of an obscure reality show on MTV, so... I, honestly, when I look at other versions of this, I'll often see Pokemon mentioned in like the, the the YouTube comments and stuff like that. So I think Pokemon may be the best thing to ever happen to this song because I think otherwise it might have actually fallen into uh, real obscurity uh, much more so than you know it may not be the most famous song on the soundtrack, but I think it would be a lot more obscure uh, than it would be otherwise without this placement.
1: Hmm. I agree.
0: All right, well, that covers most of what I wanted to say about making my way any way that I can. And I think the next one you've picked up is also from the Pokemon, the first movie soundtrack. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, so my next song uh, is from the Princess of Pop herself, uh, Soda Pop by Britney Spears. I picked it... Like, I'm honestly not sure why this song was on the soundtrack, and I never have been, Um other than like it's evoking a feeling of summer and lightheartedness. Um, I think, like Steven's mentioned a couple times, like soda pop is an item in the game, so maybe that helped with the decision. But it just always felt like a weird choice. But it was written by Mick, uh, Mikey Bassey and Eric Foster White. Um, Mikey Bassey is a songwriter, producer, he's worked for. A lot of big-name stars, uh, Joey McIntyre, Britney Spears, Gloria Estefan, works for Sony and Jive Records, um, which is the same company Britney was signed to. Eric Foster White, he's an American songwriter, Grammy-nominated, has also produced songs for uh, the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, a lot of people around that era. And, like, I found it interesting about him, but, like, he... Toured with Frank Sinatra. Like so he's a he's a bit of an older gentleman now, but he's has quite a history in the music, the popular music bis- business. He's he's seen all the things. But yeah, this song was written for Britney's uh first album, Baby One More Time. It was never released as a single. And it's kind of one that's gotten both praise and criticism because being a pop star, uh, she was subjected to a lot of criticism. Some of it justified, of just like the quality of pop music, but a lot of people have also commented. Soda Pop and a lot of the other filler songs on the album are very odd sonically. Uh, Soda Pop combines like dance hall music and bubblegum pop, and like a lot of interesting choices of instrumentation and genre that make it um, worth some looking at and consideration whether or not you agree it deserved to be on a Pokemon movie soundtrack.
0: I've always been kind of perplexed by this one on multiple levels. First of all, the lyrics are kind of hard to understand, to be honest. Um, It's kind of hard. It's one of those party songs as far as the Pokemon, the first movie soundtrack goes. That They're, to be honest, kind of hard for me to... Like if I ever want to do a why it works, I might have to combine it with stuff like Get Happy by Bewitched and uh, Have Some Fun with the Funk by Aaron Carter. Just because they kind of all fill, fill the same niche where they don't have too much to do with the movie itself. They just have the right kind of mood, mm-hmm. uh, which is definitely how I feel uh, kind of about this one. 'cause you know other than it being an item in the game which I, I pointed this out in our live discussion that we did uh at uh let's see at a convention in your area a couple years ago is that had this continued we might have gotten songs uh maybe there must be something named freshwater out there, but who knows we could have gotten beyonce's lemonade on a Pokemon soundtrack if they had kept going with this <laughs> but um you know it i it does feel kind of. The word that came to my mind just now was miscellaneous. Uh, This isn't even, as far as I know, the only, like, sync placement this thing has had. I think it was used in an episode of, like, Sabrina the Teenage Witch or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is just sort of a a mood-type song rather than something that is based on its lyrical uh, connotations or something like that, Anne? Does that kind of make sense what I just said there?
1: Oh, yeah, it's absolutely, um it has a long life of placements um, and it's all based on, I think it's the mood it evokes um, and that party feel because lyrically this song is very dirty. It's one of those that listening to it as an adult, I'm like, oh, my childhood did me so wrong. I'm glad I didn't understand that then. Um So yeah, it's nothing I'm sure in this song was chosen for its lyrical content because a lot of its placements are... Things that are just trying to give you a fun, happy vibe. A lot of things like Pokemon that are marketed to children. So they are not thinking about lyrics at all, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how much else. Today. I did kind of want to mention uh, they released Baby One More Time on vinyl, I think, sometime last year. So this not counting like the acoustic version of uh, Don't Say You Love Me. This is like one of the first songs from this you can get on vinyl, Um, So I guess there's a little bit of novelty there. I mean, it's kind of hard how to rate this one because it doesn't sound like it was that famous of a song per her album uh, or anywhere else. It's just kind of been places. Uh, Not to say it's a terrible (laughs) song or anything. I don't find it ear-splitting or anything like that. I just find it hard to pin down uh, a lot about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, growing up, this, like buying that baby one more time album on cassette tape like that was the first album i ever bought for myself so like in a way soda pop has a special place in my heart despite some problems i have with it as a grown woman but like whether or not i don't really associate it with pokemon so it's hard to it is hard to rank it cuz it is it is part of the pokemon soundtrack too but it kind of seems to exist apart
0: yeah, you know, I, you know, if you look at Britney's next album that came out in early 2000, I think much, you know, had it been available, a much better choice for Pokemon would have been Stronger, which I guess was destined for radio play. Uh, but if they had had a demo or could have pushed that into production for this movie, I think that would have been a, a very interesting choice, uh, thematically. Mm-hmm. For the soundtrack. But, um, in, we got this, like I said, not a terrible song musically or sonically or anything. It's just that, uh, it evokes a mood, and got a
1: lot of interesting you stuff. Yeah,
0: that's kind of what we've got there. Lullaby by Willow. For, I mean, Manda probably didn't need those Jigglypuff samples to indicate what character prompted its inclusion, as the lyrics match quite well. The Puffball isn't the largest, strongest, or most intimidating Pokémon out there, but it does have another trick up its sleeve that it's more than willing to share, and the first verse summarizes that pretty accurately. As for the second verse, the primary Jigglypuff from the anime does appear many times throughout the series, making the term déjà vu very appropriate. Even the chorus manages to provide a good parallel, as the repeated use of the song's title mimics how most Pokémon say their name when talking. Finally, the inclusion of the word capture in the bridge hints, unintentionally of course, that sleeping Pokémon are easier to catch. As for the musical aspects, while Latin influence might seem more appropriate for a singing and dancing mythical Pokemon that would come many years later, it is still fitting for our cheery pink balloon. In any event, what do you think of this adopted character song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. All right, well, I guess we should go back to my list. So the second song I picked out is Flying Without Wings. We, we mention it every now and again on there. We talked about a live version of it in our live Pokemon music episode last year. So this was written by uh, Steve Mack, Wayne Hector, and uh, basically was produced back in, I guess, 98 or 99 in Europe. And, you know, there was a little bit of a debate about who would get to record that song. And uh, you might go to someone like Boyzone or some other uh, Europe-based uh, boy band act. But... um one of the uh, producers or managers for Westlife, this name will make a lot of sense when you hear it, Simon Cowell uh, went in and sort of lobbied for his own band there, and they eventually got this. And it was released on, I believe, their debut album. And, uh, you know, it, it charted very well in Europe. It was number one, I believe, in both Ireland, which is where Westlife is from, and in the UK, and did very well throughout the rest of Europe, but I don't believe it was ever released as a single here in the States for them, um, which gives it kind of a weird dual status. And then you fast forward to 2000, and it ends up on the soundtrack to Pokemon 2000. Uh, it's about, it's track seven, if I remember correctly, on there, um, towards the middle of the album. It ends up there and, you know, at first it might not seem like a great placement because there are definitely creatures with wings in that movie, but I, I kind of get the feeling it was meant more to represent some of the, the human characters, in uh, particular,ly uh, possibly the uh, Delia and Ash relationship, uh, especially when you go on the bridge there, you know, the uh, impossible as they may seem, uh, you've got to fight for every dream, which I think is something Delia would tell Ash um, and, and things of that nature. But um, this the song has a massive footprint. And of course, a couple years later, via uh, American Idol, Ruben Studdard did a version of it and released that. And that did very well on the U.S. charts. I think it made it up to maybe all the way to number one. I cannot remember off the top of my head if that version uh, went that high on the Billboard charts. But it did extraordinarily well there. So it, it leaves us with kind of an odd uh, scenario with all of that there. Uh, certainly, being associated with Pokemon has not hurt its reputation. I think there's one or two other sync placements it's gotten over the years with like one or two other movies, but it, it puts it in a very interesting spot. Um, and do you have any sort of uh, initial thoughts on that chronology or anything like that?
1: Um, I, mm, I'm not sure if I have much to add to what you just said. Like, just that it again, it's kind of another song that just seems to work, even though it wasn't maybe produced specifically for this movie, like lyrically, musically, it just fits where it was placed.
0: Yeah, it is actually in the movie. It's the third song in the end credits right after Pokemon. And of course, that itself is preceded by The Power Mm -hmm. of One. But yeah, and depending, I guess, where you're from, and when you asked uh, the question, is this a Pokemon song? The answer varies somewhat. I mean, Regardless, even though I had nothing to do with uh, its placement in the movie, obviously, since I was in high school when Pokemon 2000 came out, um, I I still feel kind of a sense of pride for whatever reason that this song is associated with this franchise to whatever level. But like I said, with all the other success it's had, it's it's kind of hard to place. I would say maybe here in the U.S. it is a Pokemon... Adjacent song or something like that. I'm not sure. With the Ruben Stuttered version, that really kind of complicates things, just because it's it's then therefore well known outside of the uh, the Pokemon sphere. But um, and then if you're from Europe, I guess it's sort of this is sort of on a list of things places where it's appeared more there since it was a big single in uh, the year before '99, I believe, in much of Europe. Um, and do you kind of agree with that statement, or do you have your own take on it?
1: No, I would agree with that. Definitely, it's it is hard to say. Like on the in my perspective, like it is such a Pokemon song. But again, for people who maybe weren't as into Pokemon two thousand, it might just be kind of circling in their periphery. And maybe Ruben's version is more where it, they encountered it. And definitely overseas, it probably has a different feeling associated with it. I, I think you're right. Where you're from probably dictates a lot in this one.
0: Yeah, yeah, sort of what uh, what sort of your your age group and stuff like that, and if you're into the American Idol scene and stuff like that. I mean, because of all this, um, it's kind of the the number of covers of this and like the number of compilations I've seen versions of this on and playlists and stuff. I mean, one of the things I wanted to get at with all of this is I think this Flying Without Wings might be one of the most malleable songs ever written uh, in terms of where you can use it uh, and stuff like that. Like, it can be a wedding song. It can be a family reunion song. It can be a Mother's Day song. It's obviously, at least in part, a Pokemon song. Um, I've even seen it on, like, uh, a funeral compilation Um, and and things like that. It's also like a bar song, you know? You can sing with your friends (laughs) uh, like that. And it, which is really just kind of amazing. And that's probably one of the reasons it's a charted so high, both the Westlife version and the Ruben Studdard version, is that so many folks can relate to it in their own particular way. But, um, it's just kind of amazing that someone's been able to kind of put that together. And it, it you know, it, it sonically and lyrically, it sounds pretty good too. Uh, and do you also concur with that or?
1: Absolutely. I agree completely.
0: So, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, and I think it just speaks volumes about how successful this song is. But, Anne, you've got one more song on your list that you wanted to talk about. And this one is a little bit different, really, from all our other ones. Because as far as I know, it did start as a Pokemon song, but is somehow broken out of that or gotten uh, another look somehow. Why don't you explain this one, Anne?
1: This is unusual. Um, Yeah, so I'm doing Hajimari no Uta by Puffy, um, also translated as Song of Origin, and we in the states might know Puffy better as Puffy AmiYumi. Um, We've talked about them, so I'm not gonna go too much into their history. um, But like this song, it was used for Lucario in the Mystery of Mew as the ending theme, um, which would have let's see, released I think in 2005 in America, so it would have been around 2004ish in Japan. But it also appeared in a set of commercials in 2004 for um, Daihatsu Daihatsu, uh, Car Automaker Company. Um, They did a bunch of commercials for their Move Rate uh, series. That is a uh, a K car, which is um, a car very specific to Japan. It does sometimes get imported to other countries, but it's like a very compact Very small, efficient vehicle that works really well for, you know, their dense cities like Tokyo and stuff like that and limited parking restrictions and things like that. Um, If you Google a K car, you'll like see the image of what I'm talking about. Like it has a very specific look and, and like they have minivan versions, which is basically a smart car trying to be a minivan. Um, they're very interesting cars, but this series in specific, the L150 move, was targeted specifically to women um, in their late 20s, early 30s, like young young car owners. Um, and it is a line of cars that's very popular with young people because it's very affordable. So that might be kind of why they picked Puffy Yumi. is like they were, you know, very big at the time. They had a big popular energetic song. And the commercials are adorable. It's like them making faces at each other and playing pranks and kind of playing off of the pun of warate and latte and like the RL um uh being basically the same syllable in Japan. So it's interesting and I'm having trouble figuring out the timeline because it came around basically the same time as the movie would have come out in Japan and that's not something that I find happens a lot when I watch Japanese music programs and when i watch m- music come out like there's always a big push of like this is the artist and their song and it's tied into this makeup line or this movie or whatever so to have it kind of tied into two products at the same time is very interesting to me
0: now we did obviously discussed this song a lot for our uh, movie eight uh, discussion episode a couple years ago but doesn't it have like a listing of like Pokemon types in the lyrics. I mean, I'm sure they only use a small portion of it in the car commercial, you know, because it's like 30 seconds or a minute at most, but that just seems like kind of an odd choice.
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I'll have to pull up um the lyrics to double check. But like, yeah, um, there's definitely the part that plays in the commercial is not the part that's listing Pokemon types. It's kind of just kind of the you know, very energetic, chorusy feel. But yeah, like it does make it a very interesting choice for a, again a car commercial. To be fair though, this company, I was looking at other car commercials, like they've got Gackt doing car like songs in their commercial and like some of these commercials are epic like you don't actually realize they're advertising cars. Um so I'm not I honestly can't explain why this song in particular and not one of their other many energetic songs unless they were really trying to pull in some of that some of that Pokemon tie in as well. Like just kind of ride that wave of fame and not use like say one of their earlier songs that maybe wasn't in like the public zeitgeist at the time.
0: Yeah, it just seems kind of odd there, just because, you know, it's not like there was a, a special Pokemon version of this car produced, as far as I can tell. I mean, Pokemon has done vehicle stuff, like the the Pikachu VW Beetle, the Lugia PT Cruiser, and I think Toyota did some stuff in Japan with the Pokemon company for some of their plug-in hybrids. Uh, you can probably guess where that went, but... It's just kind of an an interesting combination. Obviously, the Pokemon company or whatever did not have sole discretion over that, or they permitted it to be used for some reason. Uh, In 2004, and it's a little before... I I forget what the the driving age is in Japan, if it's 18 or 20 or 16 or somewhere in there. But uh, maybe that was when some of the... the, If they were trying to just use it, but I think it's just they wanted the, the same thing. I mean, I the the thing does have kind of a car commercial type of tempo and vibe to it but
1: yeah okay, i did look up the lyrics um there's not it's not listing pokemon types it does have a few lyrics that like could be construed as a pokemon word but yeah no mostly it's just about adventure
0: well, I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, going back to making my way any way that I can. Um, I mean, if you wanted to use the the Winona Judd version in, say, like a luxury car commercial or something like that, that might not be a bad choice or something like that, or you know, something aimed at an upscale adult market. And, hey, that might that one might work. You know, especially since it's a product based on movement. I guess I should ask what kind of uh, legacy does that, that car model, is it still being made? Uh, Does it have a lasting impact there? I guess is what we got to ask here. Um, uh,
1: The move latte series uh, only went from 2004 to 2009. Um, K cars in general are still very, very popular. Yeah. Like as far as I can tell, Daihatsu as a company is still, still manufacturing, let, it looks like they were bought by toyota in 2016 so they're kind of a subsidiary now but s- still producing like i mean if, looking through their wikipedia page like they they had some ups and downs as a company definitely their europe sales have not done super well in um these late uh 2010s and onward but again like it's it's a car built specifically for the needs of life in Japan, so it still seems to be selling well there.
0: And then I kind of have to ask, uh, let's talk about the, the Lucario movie then. How much of a uh, legs does that have? Obviously, here in the States, it's a very well-regarded movie. I think it has some notoriety for being like the last four kids dubbed movie. But as far as Japan, I mean, I guess Lucario is still very popular. That's one of the reasons it's a smash and... And it keeps coming back out of Mega Evolution and stuff like that. So, does this out, does the movie? Do you know have in in like the Japanese Pokemon fandom? Does it have legs there?
1: Um, I can't speak as well to the fandom. I know when I was living over there, like you could still buy this movie like in stores. Like it was still on display, even though again it's released in two thousand five. Um and I was there maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight, like so like it was right up there with like the movies that um Manaphy and what the movie that came out that year, which was um the Shaman movie. Um No Darkrai. Darkrai came before that. But yeah, Shaman came out the summer I was there. So like like all the promo and stuff that was going on for those later Sinnoh movies, like Lucario was right up there with it. So I it must have had some legs I think to kind of still be as prominent as it was several years and several movies later.
0: So maybe a little hard for us to say but based on what you've said there I think this is pretty still squarely a Pokémon song. I mean I guess if you've got a, a, a if that was your first car or whatever maybe that commercial really sold you or your parents or whatever on it um so you could get that so maybe that does have some bearing there but um I think we can pretty squarely say that that uh, song of origin or beginnings or uh, the the Japanese name of it pretty squarely a Pokemon song uh I think
1: Definitely definitely
0: but but still a very interesting footnote there I part of me wants to do an episode of like what Pokemon songs would you use in a car commercial or something like or an advertisement <laughs> for something else at this point so that I'm not sure if we'll ever do that but it does sound kind of interesting right about now Mm. Okay, well, I I have one more song to talk about. It is, of course, uh, Happy Together. And, of course, this actually has a couple different contexts with the Pokemon franchise. Uh, This was, uh, of course, originally done by a a group called the Turtles in the late 1960s. And has sort of had a, a very famous song, did charted very well. I think it might have made it up to number one and and has has really lasted, I think my favorite version though is probably the uh there's an acapella group called nylons that was active in the eighties and into the nineties a little bit um in the early two thousands and uh they did a cover of it which I think is my favorite version of it but um as far as its uh connection to Pokemon, you know the first one is actually in the uh North American commercials for the original super Smash brothers back in ninety nine they they use this, this song uh, really quite ironically in the commercial because it starts off, there's a, there's four characters in suits. There's a Mario, a Yoshi, a Donkey Kong, and a Pikachu. And it starts out they're all pretty happy uh, together, literally. And then all of a sudden, one of them trips the other one. I forget which one it is. And they all start fighting. Um, and the music still plays there. But now, of course, like I said, it's taken on that ironic tone of... Uh, them fighting with each other and the entrepreneur you know, there's something gone terribly wrong in the happy-go-lucky world of Nintendo. It's Super Smash Brothers from Nintendo's, you know, something, not those exact words, I don't think I quite got right, but you get the idea there. And lo and behold, uh, almost uh, 20 years later, in 2018, in November, the first trailer for Detective Pikachu comes out, and they use that song again. I, I don't know for certain if they picked it for that reason, uh, or if that factored into their decision there. But you know, we hear it again, and in that case, it's I think it's being used. I did a whole uh, speaking of another plug for my "Why It Works" series. I did one on this, I think, last year, and uh, sort of talked about how the sort of dichotomy between the uh, sort of downer verses and the uh, really bright, happy. Uh, keep using that word. Chorus is sort of the, gives the dichotomy between, like, uh, the younger Goodman character and, uh, Detective Pikachu. Pikachu is, of course, very energetic and kind of all over the place, especially since it drinks so much coffee and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic there, but, um, I guess I should ask, Anne, what's your kind of history with this particular song? Uh, how do you, I assume you must have known about it since it's a, a real standard from that era of the late 1960s. Uh, you must have known about it before it was used in either of these cases, but I, I just kind of want to get your, your yeah. personal history with it.
1: Yeah, it's like a song that you've known it for so long, you almost don't remember where you heard it first. Like, yeah, I've just always heard this song, always known it, always been able to belt out singing it if it came on at karaoke night. I do, like, I did grow up with, like, um, an acapella group that um, my mom and my sister were quite fond of. I can't remember their names now, but they kind of did a lot of parody acapella songs and So Happy Together was one of the songs they did um, about a guy who, like, likes is stalking this girl and is, like, watching her from up in the tree and, like, I've I've got your cat, don't be alarmed. Like, it's creepy and funny in a in that way that you sometimes look at uh, songs with a very sardonic sort of lens Um, so there's a part of me that like can't separate like that humor slightly stalkery feel whenever I hear this song but like again it's just I've always heard it it always evokes that cultural zeitgeist feeling that it's meant to
0: well, that is not the quite the response I expected. I'm, I'm o- almost sorry I mentioned the Nylons version, because uh, that may have jogged your memory a little bit there.
1: It's a great song. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know if you remember the, the N64 Smash Brothers. I remember it because it, they actually did like a weird promo live stream thing back in 99 over, you know, the internet and stuff like that. Very strange. To promote the game. Um, I assume though you definitely remember the Detective Pikachu trailer coming out. Um and what we'll was your reaction there?
1: It looked like a lot of fun. Like it was kind of that movie was one where kind of in the same way of Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolutions, like I wasn't sure what to expect from it. I had a lot of concerns. And, like, you know, it's things that have never been done before. And, you know, American company, fully American company making a Pokemon movie on our soil, like, and, you know, not adapting it, Um, you know, and the CG Pokemon and all these things. But, like, when I saw that trail, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. I feel a lot better now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't have quite the same reaction. I mean, I love the trailer, but I mean... (laughs) Well, technically, it was it was filmed on British soil, because most of the movie was filmed in the greater oh, London fair. area. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking sorry. of the Mewtwo Strikes Back trailer, actually, uh, the evolution trailer, because I was, I was very concerned about some of the musical-related stuff, which, if you've seen our review, was a little disappointing to me what we actually got. But as far as this one... Um, Really did enjoy that. I have to say, if you look at the overall marketing for Detective Pikachu while we're on the subject, you can kind of tell that there were some folks at at Warner Brothers or whatever marketing agency they were working with that really loved uh, the series and the franchise and stuff. I'm guessing either you know because they uh, grew up with it or maybe some of the senior people at Warner Brothers had worked back in the kids' WB days, back around the turn of the century, and they were like, yes, we get to do this again! Um, and I think that sort of pervades the entire marketing campaign for Detective Pikachu. That the that really shows that how much they really, really like that. But I do have to say, even though you know, if you search uh, "Happy Together" Pokemon, you will find some covers that reference it, especially since the movie came out and stuff like that. That being said, you know, "Happy Together" very well-known song, well outside of this. This context. So it is maybe uh, a Pokemon is a stop along its journey that it's revisited (laughs) for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. We'll see if they ever use it again in in one of the maybe if there's a Detective Pikachu 2 movie at some point. Finally, maybe they'll bring it back for something or or something of that nature. I don't know. But uh, I'm not really on board with calling this a Pokemon song, but it is a Pokemon related song or a song that Pokemon fans really like. Uh, more than a, a little bit, uh, they would otherwise. Does is, is that sound like a fair assessment, Anne?
1: Yeah, completely fair.
0: <laughs> but yeah, definitely, definitely wanted to talk about it though during the discussion, since it seems like it fits right in. Okay, well, that's that's kind of the last song we had on our list, but there's still some other things to go over. Uh, first of all, we got a little bit of feedback on our Pokemon Pinball episode of all things. This is our first game discussion that we did way back, I think last summer, August or September, somewhere in there. But uh, you may remember we were not able to find a music credit within the game because the game doesn't really even have credits in it. Uh, if it's in the manual, I have no idea where mine would be. Uh, one person pointed out in there that they uh, believe it is uh, Go Ichinose, uh, I hope I said that about right, who would later work on the Gold and Silver games, and at least for a couple generations thereafter, if I remember correctly. And I I, I think I've heard that elsewhere, too. I just have never been able to pin down a source on that being the guy who did the music for on Pinball. It's quite plausible, but um, if someone knows of like if if he has a website or something, or if there's some sort of of uh, an interview or something like that, um, that'd be great to have a, a, an actual source on that. Uh, but and I, I don't suppose you have too much of a, a thought on that, but I did want to kind of bring it up here.
1: Um, I can't say I have much of a thought. My goodness, his credits are extensive, though. Um, on like game sites. Oh, he has a Twitter, though. Um, And it looks like there's a few interviews uh, with Shinji Miyazaki and the Game Freak sound team, of which he is a part. So yeah, like there's definitely a bit of a rabbit hole if anyone wants to go down. Obviously, that Twitter is written entirely in Japanese, so you have to do some legwork there. But yeah, his Twitter is full of retweeting Pokemon stuff and seems to be nerding out about it as much as we do. So...
0: (laughs) But yeah, one reason I wanted to bring that up is, of course, uh, if you are listening to this or any of our discussions, we always appreciate feedback. If you want to fill in details or have your own opinions or if we ever do another one of these disputed uh, song things, uh, if we can get enough together or decide to do a mini episode or something like that, we would absolutely love that. You can always give us a comment or drop us an email. Uh, You can email me at pokepress at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at at pokepress. Uh, That's always a good one. So, uh, this wasn't, uh, a generational spacer episode, I guess you want to call it. We, last time around we did Hey You Pikachu, which was the last Gen 1 game. And we like to do these, uh, intermediary episodes between generations. Our next one is going to be the first Generation 2 side game, which is Pokemon Puzzles Challenge for the Game Boy Color. You may remember a couple of months ago we did a discussion of Pokemon Puzzle League for the N64. Uh, The games are mechanically quite similar, but the music is entirely different. And we're going to talk about all of that uh, when we do that discussion. But uh, until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest Podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at PokePress on Twitter. But um, I I was thinking, you know, if they wanted to use, like, the refrain of the pokey rap, you know, they got to catch them all, got to catch them all. That (laughs) might make sense in, like, a sports – that might make sense in, like, a sports context. Like, if someone – like, if uh, a quarterback, you know, completes a bunch of passes in a row, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe to the same receiver, or in baseball, if someone catches a bunch of uh, pop flies in a row or in a single game or something like that, and they make a highlight reel, you know, maybe you could use it there, but – you know with with one exception that we 're not discussing in this the power of one it's it 's kind of hard to see some of the stuff being that w- that was written for pokemon to be used outside of that uh, that context so mm-hmm.